والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى اله وصحابه ومن استنى بسنته الى يوم الدين. وفرزه الله من الاخبار الدسم من الاخبار محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of this evening's presentation, which was chosen for me, was youth, the pillar of society, the pillars of society. When I thought about this topic, I understand from it that Unthinkable today. 
position that Muslim youth held. And the example of Umar ibn al-Khattab, who used to include in his meetings with the leading Sahaba when he sat with them on Shura, a consultative committee wherein decisions were made, he would include along with him Abdullah ibn Abbas, who again was 15, 17 years old. And the other Sahabi, Sahaba began to grumble. Why is Omar ibn al-Khattab including this young man? When we have children his age, we leave them at home. We don't bring them with us. What is he doing sitting with us, senior? So when the grumblings reached Abdullah, reached Omar ibn al-Khattab, he brought Abdullah ibn Abbas, as he usually did, sat with the rest of the leading Sahaba, and then he asked the rest of the Sahaba, what did they think the meaning of was? What did they think was its meaning? Now some of the Sahaba realized that Omar ibn al-Khattab was going to teach them a lesson. Right? So they just remained quiet. Others felt they understood what it meant. إِذَا جَعَلَ صُلَاهُ وَالْفَتْحِ وَرَعِتَ النَّاسِ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ فَوَجَا فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَابَ It's clear, meaning Arabic text, clear. Allah's help and His victory comes. And you see people coming into the uh, religion and waves, etc. Then we should glorify Allah and seek His forgiveness because He is the all-forgiving. Clear. So then, after he asked them and they gave their opinions, he turned to Abdullah ibn Abbas and he asked, what do you understand from this? Abdullah ibn Abbas said, this was Allah's farewell to the Prophet This surah was bidding the Prophet farewell. That his time had come to an end. And after Ibn Abbas had made this explanation, Omar ibn Khattab said, that is all that I understood from it. Affirming Ibn Abbas's understanding as superior to all of these other leading companions, etc. Why? Because Abdullah ibn Abbas Muhammad had designated him as Turjuman al-Qur'an, as the one who would elucidate the meanings of the Qur'an, putting him on a status above any one of his contemporaries. So, this was the legacy of the early generation. <clears throat> and we see it also in those who came after them, the time of the Tabi'een, 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 leading scholars who went out at an early age to go and seek knowledge, and they became leading scholars in their early 
twenties, late teens, they were leading scholars. This has been a tradition. However, today, if we ask the adults about youth being a pillar of society, the general consensus is that they are pillars of corruption. Isn't it? The general consensus is that they are pillars of corruption. The crime, the murders, thievery, this is the general role of the youth in society today. Society in decay, a decaying society whose moral foundations have been removed and internally it is collapsing. The rise in crime, everything else that we see, these are just the symptoms of that problem. The moral decay of Western civilization. The globalized culture who, while professing that it represents the pinnacle of where society needs to go and where it needs to be, yet in its own home, the societies, the big cities are crumbling. The schools are rotting. In the United States of America, in your big cities, most of the schools have at the gates, when you come into the school, huge schools, when the students come in, they have metal detectors. You know, like when you're going onto the airplane, you're going to take a trip, you have to go through a metal detector. These schools have metal detectors. To students who are coming into class with knives and guns because there are so many killings of teachers. Teachers stabbed to death, shot dead, beaten up in the schools. That is the clear indication of a decaying society. So don't be fooled by the technology the external progress internally that society is falling apart. And its culture is, has been globalized through satellite television, magazines, etc. That same corruption is spread around the world on a global scale. So it is not surprising that we find here in Kenya youth being a pillar of corruption as they are in western centers of civilization. It's not surprising. But we Muslims are supposed to be different. tradition of morality 
which we have upheld over the generations in spite of the dismantling of legal systems which are influenced by religion in the Muslim community religion and its principles still remain intact so you will not find in the Muslim community this is an example gay imams in general we don't have a problem of gay imams For Christians, they have that problem. They have gay priests, they have gay congregations, and it's a big problem. <laughs> the only people who are holding out right now are the Catholics. The Protestants, they rejected it. Even though the Bible is very explicit that for homosexuals, caught, they're supposed to be executed stated in no uncertain terms in the Old Testament. Yet, modern day Christianity has backed off. Times have changed. People's understandings have changed. So religion has to change to match with the people and the changes. So, now we have gay priests, gay congregations, gay churches. So, that is what is out there in the globalized culture. Internally, as Muslims, we have tried to hold this back. And alhamdulillah, to a large degree, because of the solidity of the foundations of Islam, we have kept much of that at bay. However, let me tell you, in San Francisco, there is a gay mosque. Yes, there is a gay mosque in San Francisco. San Francisco is the headquarters of homosexuals of the world. They have a gay mayor, they have gay it's the headquarters and now they have a gay mosque so though as a whole Muslim we will never accept this you know we can see some things happening and when we come back to the Muslim community and we look at the youth who should be the pillar, the positive pillar for the community, where the community can look at them and feel positive about the future. Instead, the youth are looked at as sources of corruption. There are few in the masjids. Most of the people in the masjids are old. Youth are not involved. 
So, this talk needs to be focused on those who can make a difference. It is not about trying to convince the youth who are here that they should be involved. The fact that they're here means they feel that they should be involved. But the reason why their numbers are so few, this is what needs to be addressed. And so my talk is focused really on the elders, my generation, and those under me. What happened? Where did we go wrong? Why aren't our youth a source of good news, Bishra, for the future? Why is that the case? Because we, our generation, in general, have failed. We have failed. Because that youth, those youths, were our responsibility. We are the ones who raised them. And we have to look, we look at how we raise them. To find out where we went wrong, so that we can correct the situation and move forward in a positive, constructive way. We know that raising children Islamically is something highly regarded in Islam. Had spoken about seven, seven individuals, seven whose who would be shaded by the shade of Allah's throne on the day when there would be no shade except for the shade of His throne on the day of judgment. Second, mentioned by the Prophet was Shabun Nasha'a fi ibadatillah. A young person, a youth, who grew up worshipping Allah. Who grew up worshipping Allah. That should be our goal. To raise children who would grow up worshipping Allah. And this is where we have failed. Our children are not attracted to the masjids, to the mosques. We have to drag them to the mosque. So where did we go wrong? Why aren't they among those whose hearts are attached to the masjid because among the seven was also a man, a woman, man primarily, who, whose heart is attached to the masjid. He is attached to the masjid. As a man, his prayers are 
rewarding by praying them in the masjid. And as a result, the same crowds that we see for Salatul Maghrib or Salatul Isha, we should see for Salatul Fajr. The same crowds. But we don't see them. This is the question. This is the issue. That, that commitment to the masjid isn't there in the hearts of the parents. So how can they convey it to the children? As I say in Arabic, فَاقِدُ الشَّيْءِ One who is lacking cannot give what he is lacking. So the only way that we are going to inspire our young children to pray and to be attached to the master, to pray, to be regular in their prayers, etc., is that we be here. We fill this masjid in Salat al-Fajr. And by the time our children are seven, we have them here with us. We have the children here with us. Mostly we leave children at home. Mostly. But that wasn't the way of the first generation. Prophet Muhammad is recorded, he was making salah, and Hassan and Hussein were carrying on his back. He would pick him up when he stood up, put him down when he had to go to make sujood. This was the Prophet of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Sahaba were known to have the kids in the mosque and make toys for them during the times of fasting to distract them from wanting to break the fast. And they would be there in the masjid breaking the fast along with their parents. But mostly we don't require kids to fast. We don't stress salah. So why should it be a surprise that our children are not represented Islamically in the masjid. Prophet Muhammad had said, Kullukum rahim wa kullukum mas'oolun an da'iyati. Each and every one of you is a shepherd responsible for his or her flock. Mas'oolun meaning you will be asked about that responsibility. Allah will ask us on the day of judgment how we raised our children. Of course, if our children go astray, they make decisions to leave Islam or not practice it in one way or another, they have to answer before Allah for their decisions, but we will have to answer to Allah for what happened to them. What brought them to that state? It is not a normal state. The normal state is that righteous parents give birth to and raise righteous children. Of course, people can point to the son of Noah, right? Prophet Noah's son, when he 
him to get on the boats. He said, no. He didn't go on. He deviated. But is that the norm? That is the exception. That is to show that ultimately it is in Allah's hands. That even though the principles of righteousness were there, people can still reject it. So you might teach your child everything, provide everything for them, and they may still go astray. It's possible. But it's not the norm, it is the exception. So we don't point to the son of Noah and say, well, look at the son of Noah. So we have to go back and ask ourselves, what happened? Why have we failed? Well, we have to ask ourselves, where do most of our children spend their time? In a day, children, where do they spend most of their time? In school. That's where they spend most of their time. In school. What kind of school? I think, from what I have heard, that the majority of our children do not spend their time in Islamic schools. Either they go to government schools or they go to private schools, which you can just say are Christian schools. We are putting our children in the hands of Christians to teach them. What do you think? Even the teachers in the government schools, most of them will be Christians. So it's not much different. So what do you think? We are in fact committing our children to spiritual suicide. That's what we're doing. We're hijacking their Islam. It is the right of every Muslim child to be raised, educated in an Islamic environment. That is their right. It is their right. That they be given instructions from the time that they enter into education institution till the time they graduate. It is their right that their instructors be Muslims. And we have to understand that if we do not fulfill that right, we are in sin. If we don't have legitimate justification, now some people might say, oh, the Islamic schools are so expensive, we can't afford them. We can't afford to put them in Catholic schools. How is that? Are the Catholic schools cheaper than Islamic schools? Hmm? We find excuses. Islamic schools, you know, the academics is not very good. What do we want? Is it better 
his, his academics is weak, but his Islam is intact. Or to have one who graduates whose academics are top of the line, but his Islam is destroyed. What do we want? If that's the choice that we have to make, there's only one choice. That is no excuse. Academics is no excuse. I've heard some parents even tell me, we're putting our children in uh, Catholic schools because we want them to give dawah to the Catholics. <laughs> what kind of dawah are the kids going to give? It's a joke. It's a joke. These kids are being fed information in every class. The teacher, no matter what the subject, is feeding them information contrary to Islam. Because their whole belief system is contrary. So they feed that information subtly. They may not openly say to the child, Jesus is your Lord. But indirectly, they're feeding them all kinds of misinformation. And they go through a whole generation of study, and what do we expect to come out at the end? If we find amongst us a few youths who are, alhamdulillah, mashallah, we, could, we can't say, look, look, they succeeded. No, again, there are the exceptions. You don't build principles on exceptions. You build principles on the rule. Ask that same young man who is now Islamically motivated, how many of his classmates who are Muslims are like him? So if he is one and twenty went astray, what do we say here? What do we say? Well, we devised as a means of protecting Islam in the past, the madrasa system, the madrasas, as a means of protecting the Islam of our children. In time, we realized that of course, the children had to go into the mainstream, because the madrasa education did not equip them to play meaningful roles in the society. We cannot produce doctors, engineers, you know, lawyers, etc. through the madrasa system. So, parents began putting their children into the government schools, the Catholic schools, etc. In order to make up, we set up a system of after-school Islamic programs and weekend Islamic schools. And this is basically where most of our children are being educated. We have set up, alhamdulillah, some Islamic schools, a few. But if we look at these small numbers and Look at the numbers of Muslims, we know that this is just a drop in the ocean. 
vast majority don't have access to what is happening in the schools. So, if this is the case, we need to look at these after-hour madrasas or Islamic school programs and the weekend school programs. How successful are they? This is what we need to look at. Now, I would venture to say that if we ask the young people today, and those of us that are not that old, we just came out of that, we just graduated from university, so we can remember what the weekend schools were like, what the, the uh, after-hour schools were like, I would venture to say that most kids will say it was a horrible experience. It was a horrible experience. The weekend madrasa, the after-hour schools, was a horrible experience which our children hated. And they hate it. So, we need to address this. If we are to change the situation, then we need to correct it. Some parents, to avoid the madrasa situation, they have more means, they hire a muallim to come and teach their children in the home. But then, asking those children, how was your experience with the muallim? Again, they say it was a horrible experience. They were caring the whole time. You know, they came. Abuse. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to abuse. So what can we expect? We know in general that the muallim, for the most part, who become the muallims? Those who are problem students, they can't make it in the regular madrasa, so we push them in the, in the regular school, they the school, and then we push them in the madrasa. You know, this is where they're put. So your problems, the problem children of the society, are your future muallims. <laughs> so what can we expect? What can we expect? So this is a very, very serious problem. And it's not just here in Kenya. Don't think I'm just picking on you. No, this is all over the Muslim world. All over the Muslim world. There is this very serious problem of education. That Muslims have not taken the responsibility for establishing educational institutions in the community and to ensure that young people are properly educated Islamically. So that we can have a generation in which we can have hope for a bright future. This is a global problem for the Muslim community, the Muslim world. It's a challenge. 
It can be changed. It can be corrected. But we have to recognize it and then we have to tackle it systematically. This is the only way. We have to first recognize it, accept it. You all are laughing, so we know this is not a secret. You know, Dr. Bilal came here and exposed some secrets. No. You all know it. And you know it well. You know those children when you want to take them to weekend madrasa, they hate it. They don't want to go. They're crying, dragging them to these madrasas. So, we are sealing our fate. Sealing the future for ourselves. So the only way forward for Muslim youth to become the positive pillars of the Muslim community is to take this issue of education very seriously. Of course, we cannot in an instant provide sufficient schools for all of our children and just turn the thing over and around in a matter of years, few years. It's going to take time to produce, to establish enough schools for our children to have proper education. And then even in these schools there are issues. I won't go into all of it, but they have issues too. Because the teachers who are teaching Islamic studies, who are teaching Arabic and Quran, they are product of the madrasas, muhallims who may have gone abroad and studied and got degrees, but they came from the muhallim system. Many of them. So, when you put them even in the Islamic school to teach, if you ask, in the best of the Islamic schools here, they ask the students, what is your favorite subject and what is your most hated subject? You'll find unanimously the most hated subject is Islamic studies, Quran, and Arabic. So even in the Islamic schools, we have a problem. So it's a big problem. So we have to tackle it. Tackle it systematically. We have to stop this tradition of abuse in the name of Islam. Abuse of our children. Where the Quran teacher will tell you, when you go to meet him, you're bringing your child, he has a big cane beside him. And you ask, what is that cane for? He said, these children will not learn without the cane. <laughs> they don't know. This is a legacy which he has inherited. That's how he learned. That's how his father's generation learned. His grandfather's. It's a legacy. This has been handed down generation to generation. But was that the way of Prophet Muhammad wasallam? Do we have it that he taught the Sahaba by whipping them with canes? <laughs> Don't have this. This is not the, this is not the legacy of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Not the legacy of the Sahaba or the Tabi'een or the Tabi'een, the best of generations. 
history. It came about at a time in history when Muslims lost their way. When Islamic knowledge declined and Muslims strayed. The rest rose the 14th century, 15th century, and they dominated our countries, our lands. Drove us out of Spain, took India, etc., etc. It is a product of that time. So, we have to correct. We need to develop a new generation of teachers. Teachers who will teach the Quran, Islamic studies, and Arabic properly trained.
circle and start to move forward. We have the skills, we have the means, we have people who are trained in our community, we can do it. The issue is how and when. Not the issue of can or cannot, we can. But the issue is how and when. When? We can begin now. Begin now by making a commitment, a mental and a spiritual commitment to change this situation. That is the starting point. Because if we don't make that commitment, then it is not going to happen. How is not even an issue? When becomes the big problem? If we accept this responsibility, recognize it, commit ourselves to change it, then the way is now. We can start the steps from now. Bring those who are like-minded with those who have means and we can start to develop more Islamic schools. We can start to tackle the madrasa system, the weekend schools, the after-hour schools. We can put this form of education in the hands of educators. This is an important step. If it is not in the hands of educators, then the children will be abused and they will hate it. Because education is a profession. It requires change training. It requires qualifications. So if we want to do it successfully, we must have properly qualified people. So here we have in our midst teachers, for example, who are trained in early childhood education. But the Islamic knowledge may not be that good, but we need to set up programs of training for those teachers so that they can fill those slots. We have to decide and begin to make a change. The future of our youth, the future of our society depends on it. What we decide here and now will determine what is to come. So I ask you brothers, if there are sisters, I don't know, there are sisters, brothers and sisters, to make this decision tonight. And then we have organizations. We need to contact organizations. Step forward, step up, and say, we want to make this change. What can we do? And inshallah, we have people who can channel this energy channel the qualifications and the finances, direct it to start this process of change.
time it's something real, it is possible, it's just up to us. Do we want to do it? Of course, it's easier to let it go. It's easier to let things continue as they are. Change is always difficult. It requires effort. And it's our nature to not want to make the effort. But it goes back in the end to what? To Iman. Do we really believe in Allah? Are we only saying that we believe in Allah? That's what it comes down to. If we really believe in Allah, believe that we will be asked on the day of judgment about our children, what happened, why it happened, then that fear of the last day will motivate us, will be a driving force, a positive driving force for us to come together, because we have to do it together. We can't do it as individuals, to come together and make this change a reality. So, just as a witness before Allah, I want those people who have accepted this responsibility and have made the spiritual commitment in their hearts from tonight to start to work for the change to put up their hands. And this is before Allah. Allah is the witness. I won't be here to remind you next year or six months from now. This is before Allah. Alhamdulillah. We can do it. So, inshallah, this is what Allah brought me here to share with you. And it's now for you to take that responsibility and make the difference. This effort, this commitment will not succeed without the help of Allah. So we need to turn to Him now and ask for His help. We make the commitment, inshallah we make the effort, and with Allah's help, it will become reality. So I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to strengthen our resolve to make the change. I ask Allah to forgive us for our failures, our deficiencies of the past which has led to the situation that we're currently in. It was out of ignorance, so we ask Allah to forgive us for our ignorance. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the realization and the knowledge that we now have. And we ask Him to give us the strength to go ahead and act on this knowledge. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect our children that are currently caught up in this evil system. To protect them from destruction. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make those who manage to survive beacons in helping those who have lost their way. We ask Allah to help us to help them, to give them a fair front 
want position in this effort because they know best what they have experienced. And I'm sure they have many good ideas as to how to change this. We need to give them an opportunity to share with us, help us to do this job because we have to do it together. I ask Allah to protect this Ummah. I thank Allah for the blessing that He has given over the generations to have produced this Ummah. And I call on you to do the same because thankfulness, gratitude is an essential part of Iman. We have hope in Allah, but we must show gratitude for what Allah has done for us. This is the starting point. So, brothers and sisters, please turn to Allah yourselves as we wait for the Adam and sincerely call on Him for His help. Because our du'as can make the difference. As the Prophet ﷺ had said, nothing changes qadr but du'a. The only thing capable of changing qadr. So let's change the qadr tonight. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Education begins at home. This is where the educational process should begin, in the home. And primarily that educational process is the responsibility of the home. It is only in modern times that, you know, we are now taking children out of the home and putting them in schools at such young ages. 
Yes, earlier generations, people did come out, listen to the first to set up universities, etc. But this was later on in life, not the early years. Not the early years. The early years it was the home in which they learned. From the mother, from the father, from the uncle, from the family members, they taught that those young children. The famous uh, scholar Sufyan Authority, he had narrated that when he went out at the age of 13, he went out to seek knowledge. Left the home. Up until the age of 13, he studied in his home. His mother was teaching him. And she told him, mother and father, but she told him when he was setting out, Son, if you write ten sentences, you're recording knowledge, you've gone into classes and you're learning. If you're recording knowledge, you've recorded ten words or ten sentences. And your faith has not increased, then you must check yourself. You must check yourself about your intentions. She gave that wisdom to her son. Education begins in the home. It should be with the Quran. It should be knowledge of Allah because of course, first of all, it's knowledge of Allah. The first word that the child should be able to say should be Allah. We should encourage them to make this among their first words. So, initially in the home, we should give them as much Islamic knowledge as we can. Oftentimes, their level of knowledge will be limited by us. We are the ones who will limit their education. We feel they're too young, they can't understand this, and so forth, but you'll be surprised at what children are able to understand. So, as parents, if we want to do it effectively, then we should take advice, because most of, most of us are not coming from traditions of learning, etc. So, parenthood is an experiment. We have children and we experiment with them. We don't really have clear knowledge and guidance as to what we should do, what we shouldn't do. This we can take from those who have studied early childhood education, developing a system, how to educate our children in the home properly. So, we educate them on one hand to the deen, to know Allah, to be able to relate everything back to Allah. They grew up with that consciousness of Allah. This is most important. At the same time, these children can also be taught reading, writing, arithmetic in the home on a simple scale. We don't necessarily need to make it in a classroom format, but we can teach them these things too. We don't have to say it's either this or that. We only teach them the 
Maybe at the religious thing, then later on after they learn all of it, then they start. No, no. These things can be done together. So, we take advice, we take guidance. That many of us need our parenting classes. You know, we need to have parenting classes to help us to be good parents. So, if we are able to introduce such programs in our masjids, in our Islamic centers, etc., to help parents gain the necessary skills to effectively raise Muslim children, then, alhamdulillah, we can begin to make a real difference. Uh, as you know, the Islamic when the science and the Islamic knowledge has flourished. Do we have a clear view of how was the system of education <coughs> at that time? Okay, brother's question, knowing that the flourishing of Islamic and what we may call secular academic knowledge took place, reached its peak during the early Abbasid era. Do we have any clear knowledge as to the educational systems that existed at that time? Yes, we do. It's been recorded. Research works have been done on educational systems during the time of the Abbasids, during the time of the Umayyads, time of the Ottomans, etc. Research, etc. has been done. So that information is available. But, of course, to some degree, we have technological developments which weren't around at that time, which facilitate a lot of things which they couldn't do then. So it doesn't mean we have to go back and do things exactly the same way they did it. They evolved and developed their system based on the technology which was available to them at that time. Some of the uh, principles of education we can take from them, benefit from their uh, efforts, but at the same time we have things in our hands which are not available then, computers, you know, computer programs which can enhance the learning experience, etc., which they didn't have. We can utilize these things. So, when we're going to tackle it, we benefit from what happened in the past, but we also benefit from the knowledge which has been gathered in the present, which uh, can enable us to effectively uh, educate our children. Uh, I would like you to give, and I see it's not a question, most of us as parents, most of the youth <coughs> believe that by taking Islamic education, we have no careers. So, if we are going to give priority to Islamic education, the concept that there is no career is a misconcept. About a suggestion to, to me to clarify and give some advice with regards to seeking Islamic knowledge to, for our youth to be engaged in this particular line that the general impression is that one who decides to become a scholar, a Muslim scholar, 
he has no future. So if our child suggests this, we would discourage them. And only those who have been failures academically would say, okay, nothing else to do, you may as well go. But of course, this is the mistake of the parents, that this is how they approach. On one hand. On the other hand, if our children are raised properly, respecting Islamic knowledge, knowing who were the heroes of Islam, if you ask most kids, who is Batman, or Superman, or Spider-Man, they can give you all about these people. But if you ask them, who is Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad? They say, what? <laughs> they have no idea who is Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. So, this is our fault. We have allowed them to grow up mastering knowledge of confusion. <laughs> you know, they are well versed in confusion. We have not raised them with proper knowledge of the true rights of Islam. Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Shafi'i, their contemporaries, they should know who these people are. These names should ring a bell in their ears. They respect these people for the efforts that they made for the Ummah. And if they grew up with that respect, then you won't have to convince them there is a future in studying the deen. But because they didn't grow up with that, then it becomes a problem. And parents don't see any future in religious education. Now, uh, there's a question here. <coughs> He's asking, Chef, can you please assist the Islamic teachers with an, with an Islamic syllabus for primary, secondary, and college? Shukran. Uh, this, of course, is entering into specifics. Islamic studies syllabi have been worked on by a number of educational groups. There is a syllabi, set of syllabi which is already prepared. Dar es Salaam has produced a series of books from first standard up to eighth, ninth standard. Uh, personally, myself, I wrote four books for higher uh, high school because I taught Islamic studies in high school for ten years in Riyadh. So I wrote four books, they're called Islamic Studies Series, they're being used in many schools around the world. Um, recently, a, an institute has been set up in Riyadh and they are in the process of producing um, Islamic texts. They've done uh, the first three grades, have been published, They've worked out the details for the rest, and theirs is perhaps the most detailed syllabi. But this information is available. Uh, the problem 
is not so much with the syllabi. Syllabi is an element of the problem, but the other subjects that are being taught in the school, this is where the biggest problem lies. If we are to think that an Islamic school is one which has Islamic studies on the curriculum, Arabic and Quran, and three quarters of the curriculum or seven eighths of the curriculum are the secular academic subjects, then actually we have not achieved Islamic education. That is really not an Islamic educational institution. That is an institution which is perpetuating the Christian view of education, which is based on the well-known statement, leave unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. You separate religious education from secular education and secular life. And that is a perpetuation of this schizophrenic view of education. The Islamic view is that every subject which is taught in the Islamic institution should be taught from an Islamic perspective. Mathematics, history, science, geography, every subject should be taught from an Islamic perspective. Now some teachers, math teachers will be the first to jump up and say, but how do you Islamize mathematics? How do you Islamize 2 plus 2 equals 4? Where does religion come in there? We say, okay, you have to teach 2 plus 2 equals 4, so we say to the students, in the morning, for Salatul Fajr, you have to pray two rakat of Sunnah. And then two rakat of Fard. So what is the total number of rakat that you have to pray? Four rakat. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. There's a lot that we can do. It doesn't change the essential elements of the academics. We still teach it. But we keep the child's mind connected with Islam. They don't come through the system thinking that Islam is one thing and then academic secular knowledge is something else. No. It was all taught to Adam. Everything. All knowledge which is true and real knowledge is from Allah. There is knowledge which we call revealed knowledge, revelation, the Quran and the Sunnah. And the other knowledge we can call it acquired knowledge. We have acquired it through experimentation, through research, through study, etc. It's acquired. But where did it come from? We didn't create it. 
It still came from Allah. And when you look at the greatest expand, the greatest uh, developments, inventions in the history of human technology, for example, the X-ray, which is essential in modern medicine now, X-ray. How was that discovered? Did Madame Curie began, begin, she is Madame Curie, the one who discovered it. Did she begin looking for x-rays? No. She had some radium in the corner of her lab. She had some uh, photographic uh, paper hanging. And her hand happened to pass between the radium and the photographic film. And she saw the bones of her hand in the film. So, She was researching something else altogether. And she found that. And when you go to look at the great inventions, most of it is that way. All the way back to the classical story that's not really actually factually established of Newton, the apple falling and bunking him on the head and he started to think about gravity. You know all the stories, right? Some of them are just terrible. Some of them, many of them are very real. The majority of the great inventions happen by accident. That's what they call it. We say, Allah revealed it to them. To benefit humankind at the time when he saw suitable. So, that is how our children should grow up understanding knowledge. That it is all from Allah. What is true? Real knowledge, it is from Allah. There is an interesting question here in that If you have a private, uh, private school, which you teach IRL in this amount, I think the, the question of this is that uh, is asking you are a Muslim and you have a private school and the Christians are coming. So should you teach the Christians here? Should you employ a Christian teacher to teach here? Uh, to teach what? Uh, to teach Christian religion education. In Kenya we have uh, Islamic religious education. In government schools we also have uh, CRE, Christian religious education. CRE, yeah? Yeah. For a Muslim to subsidize, to pay for, to set up an institution in which Christian religious education is being taught is haram. Not permissible. If you have a faith-based school, this is what our schools are. They're faith-based. They're based on faith. We believe that the Islamic faith is the true faith. For us to employ somebody to teach something else is falsehood. We are promoting falsehood. We don't deny the right of Christians to teach their religion. They have a right. It's a multicultural society. You can teach whatever you want to teach. But in our institution, our institution should teach Islam. If non-Muslims are studying in that institution, they are required to take the same subjects that Muslims are taking. We don't make exceptions. We're not saying you have to become Muslim, but you 
Hindu are in our institution just like when we went into their institutions, they gave us a full dose. Right? Those of us who went there, we know, they gave us a full dose. Right? So, why should we compromise and say, no, 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 well, no, we teach what we believe. And if they want to accept it, that's their choice, but we're not forcing anybody. There's no compulsion in religion. The question wasn't that. Mm. Okay. The question is, we have private schools who are mostly owned by Christians. We have Muslim students who